Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to the 348th episode of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporter's Awards podcast, which this week is brought to you by Comedy Central's The Daily Show with Trevor Noah, recipient of six Emmy nominations, including Outstanding Variety Talk Series and Outstanding Writing for a Variety Talk Series. For your consideration, The Daily Show with Trevor Noah, new weeknights at 11, 10 Central on Comedy Central. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today is one of the most admired actresses of her or any generation. A performer whose 23 years of film credits include 1998's Elizabeth, 1999's The Talented Mr. Ripley, the Lord of the Rings trilogy installments from 2001, 2002, and 2003, 2004's The Aviator, 2006's Babel and Notes on a Scandal, 2007's Elizabeth the Golden Age and I'm Not There, 2008's The Curious Case of Benjamin Button, The Hobbit Trilogy installments from 2012, 2013, and 2014, 2013's Blue Jasmine, and 2015's Carol. She is one of just 21 female performers who have been recognized with more than one acting Oscar, winning Best Supporting Actress for The Aviator and Best Actress for Blue Jasmine. She's one of only 12 performers, male or female, to receive more than one acting Oscar nomination in a single year back in 2008. And she is the only performer, male or female, to win an Oscar for playing another Oscar winner back in 2005. Additionally, she's a three-time Golden Globe Award winner, two-time SAG Award winner, three-time Critics' Choice Award winner, three-time BAFTA Award winner, and two-time Spirit Award winner who recently landed her first Primetime Emmy Award nomination in the category of Best Actress in a Limited Series for her portrayal of Phyllis Schlafly on FX on Hulu's Mrs. America, which itself is nominated for the Best Limited Series Emmy. The New York Times has said that, quote, like Meryl Streep, the actress she most resembles, she is a natural chameleon, close quote. Streep herself has described her as, quote, an actress that is not only gifted and talented, but above all, a brave actress. I really admire her enormously, close quote. Russell Crowe labeled her, quote, the most spectacular creature that ever walked the planet, close quote. Liv Ullman called her, quote, the best actor of her generation, close quote, while Donald Sutherland went with, quote, the best actor in the world, close quote. Brad Pitt called her, quote, mesmerizing, exquisite, and otherworldly, close quote. George Clooney emphasized that she is, quote, the best actor working today, not actress, actor, close quote. And the late Time Magazine critic Richard Corliss once wrote, quote, Years from now, when cinephiles are asked to name the movie's golden age, they'll say it was when she was in them, close quote. I'm talking, of course, about Kate the Great, Kate Blanchett. Over the course of our conversation, the 51-year-old Australian and I discussed what caused her to give up plans to become a museum curator and to instead pursue acting, how she has selected and cracked the roles with which she is most associated, why she has consistently jumped between the stage and screen, even at times when doing so risks stunting the momentum of her film career, why, after decades of working almost exclusively on the stage and big screen, she was convinced to spend six months making nine episodes of Mrs. America for the small screen, playing perhaps the world's most famous anti-feminist, plus much more. And so, without further ado, let's go to that conversation. Kate, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Great to have you. Hope you're doing well in these crazy times. Um, but to begin with, we just always ask our guests, as it's kind of a journey through the big moments of your life and career. So I guess the first big one is where were you born and raised? And if we can ask what your folks did for a living as well. Wow. Wow, we're going, we're going deep time here. Oh, yes. Um, <laughs> I was born in Melbourne in Australia. And uh, my parents, my mother was a teacher and my father was in the US Navy and his ship broke down and my mum didn't have enough guys. And so they went down to the port to look for sailors, I guess, to come to the <laughs> teacher's dance and they met. And then he went into advertising. Amazing. Now, I, I hope you don't mind me asking. I know that, uh, very sadly, you lost your dad at a young age. And I just wonder if you have any sense of how something like that changes, shapes a person. I mean, it's tough at any age, but probably when you were, I believe, 10, it's got to 
really kind of rock your your world. You know, it's it's funny. I I've, I have so many friends um, and acquaintances who have, in the last six months, lost parents, and I I, I look at them and I think it's. In a way, I, I feel like it's much harder to lose a parent at a time when you're considering your own mortality, whereas as a child, certainly from my own experience, it was bewildering and heartbreaking, but you in a way take it, it becomes part of who you are. Mm-hmm. So I, I thought about my father's death, I think more at those momentous moments in my life when I got married, when I... Uh, had children, you know, that's, I suppose, when I felt the loss more, more acutely. Mm. But yes, and so in a way, I, I thought about my mother's loss, you know, who was 39 and suddenly had three children and, um, you know, was struggling financially. I, I thought about her loss, I think, more than my own loss. Now, were you already, I, I read that growing up, you were doing Saturday afternoon drama classes and then school stuff. Was that already going on prior to this, you know, loss in your life? Or was that sort of a, an escape for you from it? Oh, gosh. We're doing a deep dive. <laughs> um, <laughs> look, I, I mean, I never, ever thought that one could be an actor for a living. I had no of the, none of those examples in my immediate circle. And remember, I lived in Australia where, I mean, the, the, the film industry... Um, was very, in, when you look at it in retrospect, was a very potent force in the 70s and, and 80s. But it wasn't part of my frame of reference. I used to watch John Wayne movies and you wouldn't, you could call John Wayne a lot of things, but you could call him an actor. Um, <laughs> no, there are a lot of people going to shoot me down for saying that. But, um, but you know, the, I didn't think it, it was, it was something I did for absolute pleasure. And really, I, my, um, my, it was childcare. I think my, my, um, my mother sent me to drama classes for childcare. Um, <laughs> and it was literally, you would, the, the place I did my, my Saturday drama, drama classes would be condemned now. It was an old, um, it, was a bit, <laughs> it, was, it was a toxic nuclear waste facility, I think, <laughs> that had a whole lot of theatrical costumes dumped there, which I'm sure had, um, you know, you, you wouldn't want your children to touch. Um, and, and, and literally we were allowed, I think she was, had a big alcohol problem, my, my, my drama teacher, and she, and she just let us loose in this warehouse and we just used to try on costumes. So we didn't perform anything. We just literally went on adventures. And, you know, I thought I was a, a, a girl detective. I was Nancy Drew. I was Trixie Belden. You know, I was the famous five. So I didn't think about becoming an actor at all. It was just about adventure. Well, and even as you went off to University of Melbourne, I read that acting was not the ambition at all. You were, you were going to be a museum curator, right? So when and why did that change? Yes, I would. I I would have loved to have been a a sculptor or a painter. You know, there was something about the um, the tactile nature of the experience, but also I think probably the solitude. But I realised, in fact, if I didn't end up doing something with other people, I would probably end up being a hermit. So, in a way, being an actor keeps me socialised. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I I look. I've. I've had some of my greatest um, life-changing moments in um, in front of amazing works of art, and you know, could be environmental works of art. It doesn't necessarily have to be in a, in a museum context. And so, I thought to spend one's life in in that environment would be, you know, a con- had to have a con- a series of continual epiphanies in a way. But uh, it wasn't to be. You know, I got involved in drama at, at university and and then someone who didn't like me particularly much, you know, I think she probably just wanted me to get out of Melbourne, suggested that I audition for drama school and much to my and everyone else's surprise, I got in. This is the National Institute of Dramatic Art, right, which I guess a three-year program. And one of these, I tried to go back and read everything I could ever find about you from from the beginning. And one of the people I read about was Lindy Davis, who I believe directed you in a production there called Electra, which Jeffrey Rush came, I guess, and saw and was blown away by you. And a lot of, a lot of people, this was while you're still a student, I guess just you blew a lot of people away. And I wonder, you had said that 
there was something about the way that Lindy, I guess, approached, I don't know if it was her work or just the way encouraged actors to work that you sort of adopted as the closest thing to a method that you have do you know what i'm referring to or is this it's funny i mean an an acting institution is in a way it's i mean it's a very brutal environment in that it breaks you down that the ethos of most acting institutions is that it's to it's a bit like a cult i guess it's to separate you from your past from your sense of who you thought you were um it's it can be quite a humiliating environment because it's it's based on failure which, um, you know, and, uh, and it hopefully at the same time piques your curiosity. And I met Lindy Davies at the time in my third year, kind of by default, actually, um, but it sort of changed my life in that it, I had nothing to lose and I threw myself at this role. You know, another girl was meant to play the role and, you know, I don't want to go into it too much, but I ended up playing it, a terrible thing happened. It was a big thing for my, for my year. It was horrible in, a, in a many, many ways. And so I only had a few days to, to, to play this, this role. And so I just threw myself at it in a very isolated way. Um, and Lindy is, is it's, she, her, her, her whole process is based on the fact that it's a very complicated neuro-linguistic process to make other people's words your own as if you are discovering them in the moment. And so it's very much about being present. It's very much about responding to um, the audience, to where you are in space. And, I, and so I found that revelatory. But I think that what I learned very quickly is that if things are flowing, if things are working, you know, if things are um, uh, functional, then you don't need a process. When you need a process is when you're out of work, five years out of drama school, <laughs> as many of us have been and will continue to be in this particular moment in time, you, then you need, you've got a problem and you need to solve it. And that's when technique and process are a really important thing. Otherwise, it's just being present with other people and responding to the material. You know, it's, so it's, it's, a, it's great to have a technique to fall back on, I think. Interesting. Well, so you graduate from drama school in 92 in, by... By '93, you've uh, won the I think the first person to win both Best Actress and Best Newcomer at the Sydney equivalent of the Tonys. Which so it doesn't sound like there was too much of a period of unemployment uh, for for you there. But I did read that in between you had worked as a script reader for a little while, and meaning that I guess you got to read against read opposite people who are auditioning. And I wondered if if that actually was a a valuable thing for later on to just sort of see how, yeah. My God. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. There was a a casting director in Sydney who uh, saw something in me that at the time no one else saw. (laughs) And so she took me under her wing and it's how I paid my rent. I used to uh, be the reader for people auditioning. And when I finally got to audition, I realized that it's not personal. It's awful that the way people are spoken about when they go in for an audition, it's like they're too big, they're too small, they're too fat, they're too thin, they're too blonde, they're too brunette, they're too black, they're too white, whatever it is. But it's not personal. And in a way, sometimes you've lost the audition simply by the way you walk in the room. Mm-hmm. And so I, I'm, what, I, what I realized is you cannot care that much. And, you know, actually my husband and I were talking about this just this morning. Because like a lot of men in lockdown, he's been making sourdough and (laughs) his brother called him the other day and said, you shouldn't care that much because he made an amazing sourdough the other day when he was, we were in the middle of something. We had to rush out the door because we have the kids and there were 5 million things going on. And he just made this sourdough because he was trying to keep the mother alive as we're all (laughs) trying to keep the mother alive. There's a metaphor. And he didn't care as much. And as a result, the, the, this, this was the, mo- the most amazing loaf he'd made in lockdown. <laughs> and so I realised in a way that that's what a lot of actors were doing when they walk into the room. They cared too much. 
and that there's something wonderful about those performances that we all see is that of course there's a lot of work gone into them but there's an insouciance there's a there's a kind of a, a a carefree playful thing that is kept alive by in wonderful performances and i think when we when we try and lock that down and box it and do the right thing to quote spike lee then you know then it, somehow it can kill the thing that makes it special in the first place so well, that's what i i learned a lot you know well well so coming out of that initial stage success that came after that it looks like that's when first tv credits and then some films you know Are after you trying to form a narrative from my no, 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 no. <laughs> <laughs> i think you know this, kind of, this sounds like an obituary <laughs> no. i'm almost dead but not dead yet <laughs> <laughs> no it's been a lot of it's been a lot of fun uh, kind of just looking at your your uh, journey here because i guess i wondered when the idea of screen acting first became something you were you were interested in if it was if it was always as much a, a passion as theater i mean to this day you've walked away at times from your career when i'm sure a lot of people have said uh you should not be going back to do theater you're gonna potentially stunt momentum or whatever uh um, yeah just at numerous times throughout your career you've gone back to the to the stage which leads me to think that really is the the first love but when did the idea, how did, was, was screen acting just something that was encouraged or that you wanted to do? You know, you, you get into the back of a, a cab or a taxi and, and invariably, particularly in London, they ask, what do you do? And in Australia, you dread that question because <laughs> then you're going to have to say, I'm an actor. And you know, the next question is, have I seen you in anything? And when we first, my husband and I ran the Sydney Theatre Company, which is the largest of the state theatre companies, people wouldn't even know where the theatre company was. You'd get into the back of the cab. So you couldn't, you tell them that you played Hedda Gabler or Lecturer or Blanche Dubois, that, that wouldn't mean anything to them. <laughs> so in a way, it was, you only existed as an actor if, if you were on the small or big screen. Mm-hmm. And Australia's uh, film culture is very potent, but a lot of it gets exported piecemeal. And so it still remains a very potent but cottage industry, much to my chagrin. And, and so, you know, you, didn't, you, you felt like you didn't really exist as an actor unless you were in the film industry. But I did not see that that was on my radar at all. And so when I was cast as an understudy at the Sydney Theatre Company, I thought, now I'm on the right path. You know, and so it was it was my agent at the time who was saying, you know, you really need to take this role and or audition for this role. Um, but I felt in a way that being in the film industry was asking people to like you, which I'm, I don't know, I wish I was better at it, but I'm not particularly good at it. I, I love cinema. I, yeah. I've always loved cinema, but I, I never thought that that was necessarily in my you know, on, on my horizon. And so I've been blessed by the ability to move between um, the small and big screen, but also to always return to, to, to theatre, to, to dance, to movement, to being present with an audience in a space. And I really hope that that is something that we're all going to be able to return to yeah. soon, you know, because yeah, I, I think that people miss that, that ability to gather together. I think it's primal. Absolutely. Especially, I, I, th- I was thinking to myself before this that, man, if there's ever a time when uh, it would be great to have you come back to Broadway or, or somewhere, you know, the, it's really, they're going to need all the bait they can get to get people to come out because it's going to be tough. But You know, but it's not about real estate. It's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's about the church hall. It's about just people gathering in a room and hearing a story told. And sometimes that's on celluloid or digital or whatever. And sometimes it's literally actors moving around a space, you know, reading from a book. Yeah. Well, I, I wonder if we can just connect the dots that came pretty in, in pretty quick succession, I think, starting with Paradise Road in 97, Oscar and Lucinda also in 97, and then the one that most people, I guess, discovered you through, uh, Elizabeth, in 98. It seems like it was sort of, you know, just a fateful thing that that Paradise Road for Bruce Beresford was was being cast and shot in Australia where you happened to be. But then from there, I saw that it wasn't Paradise Road that Gillian Armstrong, you know, she was, I guess she had seen you on the stage, but then... 
it was an Oscar and Lucinda promo reel or something that Shekhar Kapoor saw. So anyway, if you can just, you know, because again, it's you said you weren't necessarily looking for a film role. So how with that first supporting role in Paradise Road with Glenn Close and Francis McDormand, how did this get started and and lead up to that breakout with Elizabeth? Well, I think it's just luck. I mean, I'm, I was on stage uh, playing Nina in the Seagull at Belvoir Street uh, Theatre in Sydney, and Jill was very insistent that the, the Australian character of uh, Lucinda Lepastrier opposite Ray, Ray Fiennes was played by an Australian. And, of course, everyone was wanting to, her to cast the wonderful Winona Ryder, but she fought for me. I couldn't believe it. It's like hang on a minute, what's gone wrong here? But she really felt it needed to be played by an Australian. And that was a Fox film. And then, you know, Fox Studios was just starting in Australia. So I, I would like to say it was about my creative genius, but I think it was about economics. <laughs> so I got what was what used to be called in the old olden days a, a three picture deal. So I then you know I, a Paradise Road was was a Fox film, and then I I got to work with Mike Neal on, on a film called Pushing Tin, where I played a Long Island housewife, which was much much fun with Billy Bob and John Cusack, and mm-hmm. so I th- I think it was just a that's what I mean about it being luck. Mm-hmm. Luck is usually, um, you know, blind luck and something. Economics isn't there somewhere, unfortunately. Well, I, I think, though, with... Uh, I was cheap. Well, but I mean, let's it's more than that, certainly with Elizabeth, because let's just I want to read back to you a quote from the director. He said, quote, I was looking for somebody who could portray not only a reality, but an ethereal quality. This ability to be both of the earth and of the spirit was very attractive to me. The ability to be both vulnerable and totally ruthless, close quote. Now, he somehow got that just from a promo reel of Oscar and Lucinda. So I'm wondering, you get the call or whatever, you know, that we'd we'd like you to do this. A part that Betty Davis and Glenda Jackson had played on the screen. A oh, part tell that, me about it. Yeah. You know, like, was this something... I mean, it's a leading role a year after your first movie. No, I mean, Sheikh has a romantic. He told me that he saw my face coming out of the water in a, in a, um, a shot from the trailer from Oscar Lucinda. That's my Elizabeth. Um, <laughs> but the reality is that he really had to fight for me. You know, I love the guys at Working Title. But at the time, you know, it wasn't me who was on their, their radar to play the role. But what I realized through that experience, apart from the great good gift of having that opportunity, and believe me, it was daunting, you know, having that, that array of actors and Flora Robson, who'd also played um, Elizabeth, you know, the list goes on, that I realized that if a director goes into bat for you, they've seen something in you that you have to trust. And that it started really from there with my relationship with Shekhar that really strong interplay between actor and director in um I think often on on in in theater of course it has to be with the director because the mise-en-scene has to work otherwise the play doesn't take off um, and connect with an audience but certainly in film if you have the trust of a director then you can go anywhere Mm-hmm. And I knew that I had his trust because he fought so hard for me to play that role. And that's really stayed with me, I think. Well, it was interesting to read also that you thought after you had shot the film that it was not going to go over well. <laughs> yeah, uh, it was my death now. <laughs> but uh, of course... Little did I know that little there would did be you know. many death knells over the course <laughs> of my career. <laughs> no, well, I mean, here you are. It's your late 20s. You get a Best Actress Oscar nomination, and suddenly you are in the public eye in a different way. And one of the things, I just, again, reading what you had said about the, the film at that time, even before the, the reception of it, you said, quote, what Shekhar was exploring is what happens to the private recesses of yourself when you're thrust into the public eye, close quote. Now you're thrust into the public eye. How did that affect your, uh, you know, recesses your, your, or, you know, how does that affect, how did that suddenly being somebody who people know and are interested in your personal life and everything about you, was that an adjustment? Yes, I guess so. I mean, you've got to remember it, it didn't happen you know, last Wednesday when there was the internet and bloggers and, (laughs) I mean, I cannot imagine 
what it's like now. I mean, I would not be show fit, as they say, to, <laughs> to be emerging into the public arena now. It was a very gentle entry, you know, a very kind of noble entry. You know, the, the, there was a sense of people being vaguely polite to one another and, um, and that, you know, if one did an interview, then it was just as we're having now. It's just you and me, right? No one's going to listen to this. That somehow... It was just a question and answer, that, that, and the, the context in which one was speaking was understood and respected, and that, and so therefore you could have a genuine conversation, pretty much. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, uh, I think, I look back to that time, and it's not that long ago. I mean, I don't know, I'm pretty old, but not quite <laughs> that old, you know, not old enough for that to be uh, a distant memory. And then I, I, I feel like it's. Um, I look, I look about upon that time as being quite um, a polite entry into, mm-hmm. into the industry and feel quite lucky as a result. But, yes, it was a, I, I, you know, occasionally I see a photograph of me from that time and I look like I'm about to be hit with a, a pie. I, I think <laughs> it's, um, I remember going to the first time to the Berlin Film Festival and you go down the end of a hallway and they say you're going to go into the press room now and you literally go into room 101 and there's a whole lot of people in a room taking pictures you cannot and you walk out feeling like you've just you know you're a battery hen or something like you've just been (laughs) it's just shot with a thousand rubber bullets like it's really it's a very kind of um strange environment and I did find it strange from an anthropological point of view I think (laughs) but you know it's um they were good days well it was uh, in some ways (laughs) <laughs> pretty pretty quick pace from there on of course uh, i think even before elizabeth was out i believe you were cast by anthony Mangella in talented mr ripley and then that was a point at which after that at which you i think took that one of maybe the first of those breaks that for the theater that i not a break but a stepping away to go and do theater again which again at, at that moment when you're getting first sort of discovered and you have all this heat I'm sure people must have been saying, you know, this is not the time to, you know, you're supposed to pedal to the metal with with screen acting. But I guess you were you were very committed at that point to do that. And then there you came back with Shipping New, Charlotte Gray, Bandits and this, of course, Lord of the Rings trilogy, which I wanted to ask you, was that for you you're, uh, entirely shot all three at once, as I know a lot of it, I believe, was? Well, I've all, I've long been a Peter Jackson fan, uh, yeah. fan, and Fran um, <laughs> as as well. You know her her incredible films, and and so when when this came up, you know, was saying to me, "Do you really want to go to New Zealand for three weeks?" And I went, "Hell yeah, of course <laughs> I do." And so yeah, it was it was three weeks for me, and I did envy those people, you know, who would go. Every you know, every Saturday afternoon and fight battle the orcs for nine months. Um, <laughs> I, I didn't get to do that, but yeah, it was it was quite contained. And so when the second one came along, I just said, Peter, I don't care. I mean, I can I can just be in the back, a big tall elf in the background waving. But can I be part of the next one? It you was, mean the it Hobbit? Was, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Um, um, yeah no, it was really it was it was a it was a great time. And I guess, you know, in this case, the the fun factoid that I came upon was that you had actually not read the books or or had much uh, not been very acquainted with them prior to playing your uh, elf queen. Was this was that a good thing or a bad thing? I did. I I sort of I touched on them as a child. Of course, I knew about them. I'd read the first one. But really, to be honest, back to my director thing, I I wanted to work with Peter. Yeah. And so that was the bottom line for me because someone can say to you, we're, we're making the Lord of the Rings and, you know, but when Peter Jackson makes that call and the wonderful thing about being part of that is no one knew what that was going to be. Yeah. And so it, it was an absolute adventure. And I think that in a way that's what I'm, I'm, I'm drawn to things where you're not necessarily clear about what the outcome will be. Well, in that same period is... Veronica Guerin, The Missing, and then another one that I know you were drawn to because of the filmmaker, first and foremost, which is The Aviator for Scorsese with um, playing Catherine Hepburn. I read you'd, you'd signed on without even reading the script because I guess it's a chance to work with 
Scorsese, which makes sense. But um, did he ever tell you what made him think that a blonde, modern Australian woman could play Catherine Hepburn, one of the most distinctive, just such a such a unique character? What, what sold him on the idea was possible? You know, when Martin Scorsese calls you and asks you to play Catherine Hepburn, you don't ask him, <laughs> why me? Because you don't want him to become conscious and come to his senses and change his mind. <laughs> you just say, absolutely. When do you want me to fly? I'll be there tomorrow. Um, <laughs> you know, but it's uh, my, my overriding feeling after that first initial call with Marty was, I, was abject terror because I'd said yes to something that I had absolutely no idea of how to approach. And then I got to Montreal where we were shooting and he gave me the the great thing about him um, and everyone I'm sure who's worked with him would say this, is that he's often very tangential in the way that he directs and so that he he gave me a whole list of films to watch. And I realized very quickly that they were, it was an energetic direction that he was giving me. He didn't want me to play any of these, um, you know, women in cinema necessarily or Catherine Hepburn necessarily. He wanted energy. And then when you dealt with the screenplay, which was extraordinary, that you realized that the way my function, and this is what you learn as an actor in theater, what is your function in the script? My function was to come in with a bang. And so his goal, he, the reason why he wanted to screen his Girl Friday for me was he was, is that whole kind of energetic Rosalind Russell entry. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't just playing Catherine Hepburn. I had a particular function to play in the script. And he said, you know, you can play her blonde. You don't, you know, you're probably <laughs> a little bit taller than she was, you know, and he gave me absolute freedom from the constraints that a lot of other directors would have directed to, which was the looky-likey aspect of it you know he wasn't interested in that at all and I so, asked you yeah it was absolutely liberating I, I call him every second Tuesday to say so when are you going to make a film with a woman at the center again you know <laughs> Alice was really that was a good film but it was a long time ago <laughs> well um can you tell our listeners who Hope Williams was Hope Williams wasn't that in a way more a model for your Catherine Hepburn than Catherine Hepburn was. I Why re- do you say that? Well, I had read the, a conversation with your voice coach who had said that you guys watched Scoundrel and some of these other, this is an actress who I guess. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. So, but, so what did I say? Well, that basically Catherine Hepburn herself was in a way imitating Hope Williams. And so it was perhaps worth looking at Hope Williams to see what Catherine Hepburn was was doing with her oh, walk and her talk. you done your research. I didn't even <laughs> forgotten about that. Um, well, no, of course. I mean, I'm, I'm like a bowerbird. And so once you start scratching into the, the diary entries and the experiences of the person you play, you never know where those points of inspiration uh, are going to come from. And so you, you find a footnote in somebody's personal history and for another actor that mightn't be at all relevant. But for me, it was really... Interesting, because then you find the the cultural references, the missteps, the the friendships, the inspirations of the person's the person that you're playing. And of course, no one's going to watch the film and and get that reference except you. But, <laughs> <laughs> but but yeah, I mean, there is there is a point to that, and something that really stood out to me was the sense that the. Um, in in the film is that both um, Howard Hughes and Catherine Hepburn are outsiders who have, um, you know, have private fears of their own and and private reference points. And so, yeah, I guess that was one of them. People may not realize that when you sign on to do that part, she was still alive. I guess she only died literally the day you showed up on the set. Um, uh, And so I wonder, though, you know, she like Dylan, who you would later play a variation of, I know they're, you know, both pretty reclusive people. Was there any thought to try? I mean, I think she would take your call. Uh, did you ever, did you ever try to actually directly deal with her or did you leave her alone? No, no, literally. I mean, I, I, I went to get on the plane from London to Montreal where we were shooting and I picked up the paper and she died that day. Um, 
So no, it's it's very hard. I think to it's hard enough to play someone. I mean, talk about career death. As soon as I said yes to that one, I went, well, there we go. That it really <laughs> is over now because I so greatly admired her, not only as an actor but as a as a as a cultural icon, you know. And so I think I probably wouldn't have learnt very much from from that exchange. As a fan, it would have been, uh, you know, a, a glorious conversation should she have wanted to take my call. But um, I don't know that it would have helped me as an actor. And as for Dylan, I mean, that was such a bonkers ask. Um, <laughs> to, you know, that um, I think he's seen the film. I don't know. I've, I've never met him. <laughs> well, we'll come. We'll Maybe, come he, yeah, yeah. I've listened to him enough. Yeah. But talk, so, about, talk about an actor who, I mean, a, a, a creator who keeps on giving. I mean, amazing. just that the, the, I mean, he's really kept me going uh, over lockdown. You know, yeah. The, the, the new music, the music yeah. that he's been releasing. Yeah. Yeah. So Aviator led to Oscar number one. And you said afterwards, quote, I must admit on the night there was an intense feeling of relief. And I thought maybe now people will stop releasing every film I'm in in December, <laughs> close quote. What did you mean by that? Was that just, did you feel that in a way, I don't know, did you feel pigeonholed as an art house person and, or did you, I don't know, what, what did you mean by that? Maybe I was starting to sense that um, there was a bit of a machine at work that there was someone behind the curtains. You know, I think that was speaking to, you know, my first time out with Elizabeth. You realise that no one gets on that red carpet unless there's a, an army of people behind you, no matter whether you're on the fringe or you're in the Independent Spirits or the, the Academy Awards, you know, there's a, a whole lot of people rooting for you and putting out ads for you. And, you know, I, that was a big surprise to me, I think, my first time out of the gate. And, you know, it's just, you know, I'm actually in it to speak to an audience. And mm -hmm. the rest of that stuff is great, but then you get asked all these questions about what are you wearing and, and do you think you're going to win? And you go, do you know how irrelevant that actually is to me? <laughs> and how, how can you please, you know, and you feel disingenuous saying that. And so it's just the, it's the, the groundhog day nature of the conversation. Not to say that one, it, one of course, if you're in a film which has, um, you know, garnered attention or, you know, and, and an audience, frankly, it's you're over the moon. But then you feel like you're kind of embroiled in another thing that you really don't have a lot to do with, but yet you're somehow implicated in. And it's a strange feeling. It is. I bet. And I, um, I don't recall if The Aviator was one of these, but I know that a number of your films were, you know, distributed by the late Harvey Weinstein. And uh, I just wonder if you if that was part of because, I mean, I've talked to a lot of people, including your uh, Kate Winslet and others who have said, you know, it was on his projects in particular that you were almost made to feel like you're working for the award. It's, it's its own job in a sense during the award season beyond the job of just doing the work that, I mean, the award season, as we know, it essentially was created the modern version of it by him. So I just, you know, not to harp on him, but I just wondered if, if you had had that experience dealing with him on, I guess, I guess it would be Carol. And I don't remember which others. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's a, there are certain forces in the in the industry, and he was one of them, that are, you know, about trying to get something. Um, and, and, you know, it, it's, it benefits some people and it really is detrimental to a whole lot of other people. And so it's a, it's a really bittersweet exchange when, in fact, that most people are there for the right reasons mm -hmm. and somehow you realize that there's two or three power players that can have an enormous influence on one's career and that just doesn't feel right particularly when you're seeing people who are emergent and vulnerable and have amazing things to offer and so it's an always a very disappointing and bitter conversation to to be got in when you feel like in fact that this should be a celebration and mm -hmm. it becomes a bit like a you know you see it happen on the the, the sporting field a lot yeah. you know by selling players like my children talk about that a lot you know such and such has been sold 
to another football team or, you know, for X amount of dollars. And you think, hang on, these are human beings we're talking about. Yeah, yeah. These people who have, you know, extraordinary skills, can we not talk about them like they're a commodity? And so I think it's that conversation, you know, whether it's got someone's surname attached to or, or not, that's the conversation we really need to eradicate from the industry. Yeah. Well, for you, I know, um, and, you know, I wish, I'm, I'm sorry to be, uh, I've got so much to cover only because you've done so many great performances that so I've got old. to at least touch okay. on. No. It's okay. I'm feeling particularly but, old this evening. Oh, come on. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's talk about, I mean, Babel's interesting because it's basically one kind of pivotal scene. And I wonder for you, is that fun or stressful to know that you've basically, you know, you got to come in and make that scene, one scene really work in this case where she's been shot and uh, dealing with that? Look, I mean, Alejandro had a, I mean, it was a really powerful film and I knew it was going to be a ride and, and that my role was not going to be one that the audience was going to die over in a ditch over, but it was kind of a catalyst for, for a whole lot of really, I think, beautiful, important things, storylines to take place. And so sometimes that's your function. And of course, I've got to work with Brad again, which was, you know, painful. Well, that was you the know, first one. Looking right? at that guy, <laughs> you know, but, um, you know, and I, you know, I'd work with him again in heartbeat. You know, he's one. He's a wonderful actor and an amazing human being. But yeah, I mean, there was one. There was, I think, on our first day, we, we shot a scene of the two of us. Uh, sitting with very few words over, a, a, you know, a, a lunch, if you could call it that, at a table. And it was all about the subtext. And we, we did a couple of takes and Alejandro came in and just looked at us in despair because he knew that somehow this, and I hadn't even thought about it until he came up looking so horrified at what we were doing, that, that he needed us to go deeper and deeper and deeper. But anyone who's worked with Alejandro or seen his films knows that everybody gives blood, you know, yeah. no matter what the size of your role. That same year you did Notes on a Scandal, and I guess with, with Judy Dench, who had been the other Queen Elizabeth I the year that you were the first time. Um, and so I just wonder, you know, with somebody, how often do you take on a role? How much, how much does the co-star factor into it? Like I was thinking with, with Truth, for instance, I don't know, how often does one get to deal with, you know, to work with Redford or somebody like that. In this exactly. case, with Judy Dench, was that a big factor? You know, it's, it's, I'm very instinctual about the work. And, you know, that was a year where I think I made, I, I worked with Alejandro and Soderbergh and Richard Eyre and Judy Dench on Notes and a Scandal all in the same year, you know, and my son had had an accident and I, I just thought I'm going to have to, I can't do any of this. So it was kind of strangely, it was such an extraordinary year from a professional point of view, you know, being part of all of those projects. But at the same time, I never felt closer to a nervous breakdown, you know, like, so it's, it's um, but in a way that the work was a life raft and working with Judy was just sublime. And she, I, don't, I don't think she'd even read the script. Um, Patrick Marber's wonderful script. She said, you know, she treats it all like, you know, do I want to work with these people? I know the story. I'm going to say yes. And then I'll work the rest of it out. <laughs> and so I found, I found that really inspiring because in the end, because the, all of the elements that go to make a film are so malleable in post that all you really have to go by is who you're working with in front of the camera and who is looking at you down the lens, you know, who's doing the costume, who's doing the production design, who's the cinematographer, all of those things in the end are the most important thing because they can cut that scene out or throw that scene away or you can reshoot that tomorrow. You know, it's, um, it's, a, it's a very malleable medium, which is what makes it so extraordinary. So, yeah, no, no, in the end, you know, working with Judy was a, massive, massive draw card for me. Yeah. And you guys were so good together. And I guess I, uh, you know, a year later you did something that I don't think you had done before, which was to revisit a part. And that was again with Elizabeth, now the Elizabeth golden age. And I just wonder, sounds like Shekhar and Jeffrey Rush had been pushing for a sequel for a long time. You had been a little 
hesitant. What what was that about? What and what made you change your mind that uh, it was worth doing, revisiting? Well, my my relationship in terms of the redoing it was with Tim Bevan um, at Working Title, who I just I really admire and adore. And he'd been talking about it. And I said, yeah, am I old enough? And Shekhar had a, he had a trilogy in his mind. Um, God knows if we'll ever get there. Um, you know, to, to the, you know, the last film being t- taking place when at the, at the day of Elizabeth's death. And I said, well, I've still probably got a few years before I do that one. <laughs> um, but I, you know, I wanted to know what we could possibly hope to achieve or say about uh, Elizabeth, and when they came up with the idea of, about describing her human foibles and fears of aging, I, f- I found that very interesting because I think you know it's 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 an undeniably interesting, fascinating period of English history, yeah. uh, world, global history. But it's um, but you've got to find out what the kind of the human drama. Is, is there. And, you know, knowing that Alex Burham is going to do the costumes again, you know, um, I so admire her. You know, so there are a lot of people who were part of the second project that had been part of the first one. So there'd been sort of an odd caravan family that had been established. So that was really lovely to revisit as well. And it is pretty incomparable to have to play both Elizabeth and Bob Dylan in the same year as that year oh, was. I know, because uh, I, because I, um, you know, I had to, that, that was a very, very strange moment in time. <laughs> I was, had to lose an incredible amount of weight to play Dylan. And so I, which I'd never consciously done before. And so if you look at the movie, I'm getting thinner and thinner and thinner and thinner as the, as the movie progresses. And I'm watching Bob Dylan on, you know, every lunch hour because his, um, I, we got all the outtakes from the Pennebaker documentary, which yeah. was absolutely fascinating from just yeah. from an anthropological logical point of view forget yeah, yeah. being a Dylan fan or having to play him and then I finished Elizabeth on the Friday and I packed up my kids and got on the plane to Montreal on the Sunday morning and was on set playing Bob Dylan on the Monday <laughs> so uh, it was it was crazy yeah oh my god well um the last of the roles before I, I think a solid five-year period when you were really focused on Sydney theater with your husband uh, was Curious Case of Benjamin Button. And I just wonder, you know, I guess you had obviously dealt with VFX and technology and stuff with The Lord of the Rings, but to what, what was it like acting, I assume, I mean, for them to do what they did with Brad and then I guess with your character also, are you acting with balls on your face or what is what does it actually logistically look like? Well, Fincher had spent a long time, you know, um, as everyone knows, he's a perfectionist, um, making sure that he could deliver on the the VFX um, in a way that would be utterly believable. You know, he has got such exquisite good taste that he, I think he'd done Oreo commercials or something so that he could experiment on it. Um, and so it was It was incredible. I mean, some of these, I mean, I'm sure the technology has developed, um, you, know, you know, in extraordinary ways since we did that film. But some of them were just transparencies. But I did play a trick on Spielberg because what happened was I went, they, this, it was such a long film, you know, 97 takes each day with Fincher, <laughs> which, which was an education. <laughs> it was, it was extraordinary, you know, um, but then I, I went off and I did the, um, I did a film with Spielberg, the, the Indiana Jones film. Yes. And I had to come back to LA at the end of the shoot to play the deathbed scene and mention Benjamin Button. And I heard that they were doing an early scene with Shia and in a cafe on the same lot. And I went, oh my God. And I was dressed in a, in a kind of a hospital gown with a turban with, with all of the prosthetics on. And I said to them, put me in a wheelchair and I'll pretend I'm from Make-A-Wish Foundation. And, <laughs> and, and my wish is to meet Steven Spielberg. So they put a blanket over my knee and rolled me up <laughs> towards Spielberg. And I said, Mrs. Spielberg, <laughs> I said, I've always wanted to meet you. They said that I, you know, 
And I, and he, you could just see the look of horror on his face that somehow this old woman had got past his minders and here she was and he didn't know who I was. And David was so pleased. Because well, did, wait, so how did you, how did you reveal yourself? I said, I said, and I started speaking in my own Australian accent and I said, Stephen, it's me. And he, he looked even more horrified. Like, who is this crazy person speaking in an Australian accent? I said, it's me, Kane, it's me. And he, I don't think he still, even to this day, believed it was me. But it, it, was, the most, it was the strangest thing. But, I mean, look, when do you get to be on the lot working for David Fincher, dressed as an, you know, a, in, in prosthetics as an, and as an 89-year-old on your, playing a deathbed scene and then going to an Indiana Jones film to meet Steven Spielberg. Classic. It was surreal on all levels. Amazing. So, uh, again, I guess the only thing really in terms of screen acting during the, those next five years was the, was the, or the three Hobbit films, which I, uh, again, assume you probably shot all at once and then were yeah, able to focus on the theater. Yeah, eight shorter. days. <laughs> um, so... Uh, Coming out of that five-year period, I had read that you were a little bit concerned. I mean, you were only in your, I guess, at that point, um, in my, maybe in my late teens. Late teens. <laughs> I, I had so bad of me. No, <laughs> no, but I mean, I had read that you thought, is there going to be this? Are there going to be the same film opportunities there when I come back? And that is pretty much when Blue Jasmine enters the picture. Yeah, you know, it's funny. It's, you know, it's, it's interesting. We're talking about this like it's a, it's a pre-planned narrative. I mean, I had some of the most extraordinary life-changing experiences, career-changing, defining experiences on stage in Sydney, touring internationally with them, with the Sydney Theatre Company um, that I've ever had. And I felt in a way that I couldn't have played any of the roles I've subsequently played unless I'd gone through that. So it's not, it's never been a, um, a plan to get anywhere in particular. Like, I don't think I could have played the role in Blue Jasmine unless I'd played Blanche mm-hmm. Dubois, which That's what I was going to ask you. Yeah, very interesting. You know, they, they're, they're very, um, and I've, I, that's something that I've thought about a lot, you know, about actors who've lived a role as you do on stage, particularly if you toured as we did to Washington and, uh, and, and New York, as well as playing in Sydney, you live it for over, you know, the course of a year that then I could take the, the bones or the DNA of that role and transplant it onto an entirely different, but yet kind of similar in a way, experience that was Blue Jasmine um, and, and, and in a way shoot in a very fast and furious way as, as we did on that film. You know, because they wanted to take it to Broadway, but of course, you know, I had three kids at the time and a theatre company to run and that just wasn't possible. So I felt in a way that there was a chance to relive the DNA of that role again in Blue Jasmine. Interesting. Well, I mean, I guess, you know, whatever people's feelings are about Woody Allen, I just wonder, you know, he has directed more women to uh, collaborated with more actresses who have gone on to receive Oscar nominations or in your case, a, a, a win for that. You know, what is it about him? Is it just in the writing or why is he able to, why does he click so well with actresses? And I actually read, I know that you guys got off on, it sounded like not on the best foot from one of the things you had said, like on the first day, he wasn't particularly encouraging, but obviously it, it worked out. Oh, no, no. He came up to me and said, um, it was a long shot with um, Sarsgaard and I, and he just came up to me as if he was talking about someone else. And he said, it's awful. You're awful. It's awful. I went, okay. It's, um, it's bad. It's really bad. <laughs> At least I know. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> look, I prefer, look, I prefer brutal honesty to having smoke blown. So it's better to know where you stand. Right. But look, I, you know, it's, it's, it's a difficult thing, isn't it? You know, because it's, there's been a lot of situations, I think, for us as an industry recently, but every industry, you know, around the world, you know, that has to look at, you know, just because something good is produced, you have to look also look at the way it is produced and the component parts that go into producing that. So it's, you look at these things in hindsight and you sort of look at them slightly, you know, slightly differently. 
And so, you know, there's amazing people who have supported women in extraordinary ways and I applaud that. And then there's other people who've been damaged by the experience and you have to honour both of those experiences and it's really, really complicated. Yeah, absolutely. Last role that I'm going to ask you before we get to uh, Mrs. America, which is so great, I want to ask you about Carol, which people are, uh, I've seen different sort of journalists who have who have taken the liberty of saying you know writing ranking your work and it's often right at the very top and I guess it was something that you were passionate about enough to stick with it over a period of years when it was not that people were not willing to make it why was it so difficult to get made and and what kept you involved for as long as you were well now I think it would get made in a heartbeat but at the time we were making it, which was not that long ago, unfortunately, yeah. um, it was seen as being a, a niche experience that that, that um, would, you know, that who wanted to go and see about uh, a film about two women who fell in love in the 50s. But then, you know, Todd Haynes is going to direct it and Phyllis's script was so beautiful. And knowing that uh, Elizabeth Carlson and, Chris, and Christine Vachon were on it, you know that, that, that it's got the chance to be something really beautiful. And working with Rooney was just sublime. You know, she's so, so unique and extraordinary um, and buoyant and fine and, um, you know, so it was really, it was a... It was a labour of love for everybody. You know, I think every time Todd Haynes makes a film, you know, everyone who's ever worked with him and those people who haven't want to be part of it because somehow even if she, he's making, you know, a, a bigger budget film, it always feels in a wonderful way like it's a student film in the sense that there's risk. There's always a risk in what he does and that's really, really exciting. Well, that same year you had Cinderella, also like Carol, costumed by Sandy Powell. You also had Truth, and then in in the time since, uh, the all-female Ocean's 8, uh, Where'd You Go, Bernadette? And then I wonder what prompted, with, with Mrs. America, this FX on Hulu limited series that people have been enjoying during the pandemic, one of the few things to look forward to during these dark times. You know, growing up in Australia, had you, was, was, was Phyllis Schlafly a person that was ever even on your radar or when did she first, you know, kind of register for you? Well, firstly, you must have been one of the first uh, journalists who's actually said her name correctly. (laughs) (laughs) No, I didn't know. I didn't know anything about her, but her name kept coming up and it 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 came up in the, in the um, preamble to the 2016 election quite a lot and I was wondering who this woman was and who was this old elderly woman who's being trucked out for uh, in Trump's campaign and why did Trump go to her funeral you know and and um and so when Stacey Scher and Davi Waller came to to me and pitched the idea of the series uh, as it was forming I not only was I fascinated to know about a lot of the players in the in the second wave feminist movement the women's movement I knew but I didn't know a lot of the women on the conservative side and I thought that that was interesting nor did I know much to my shame that uh, equality was not enshrined in the American constitution one of the so-called greatest democracies in the world and I found that shocking and so I wanted to delve deeper into that and I do think that Inequality has really been a growing force in America uh, since the late 1970s. And I don't think just between the sexes, but between the races, between the haves and have not, between the native born and the immigrants, between the citizens and, and, and leaders and the powerful and, and, you know, those without agency. And I think a lot of people, I was trying to work out how we got here. And, and the Equal Rights Amendment, I think, has a lot to do with it. Mm-hmm. And so being part of telling that story, no matter who I played, was, um, I thought, going to be a really important and interesting ride. Now, over the course of your career leading up to this, had you, I, 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 had TV been something you'd even considered? Or I mean, attitudes about TV and the quality of TV have changed a lot over the just the period that you've been working. Is it something that, was there a moment when you said, all right, please send me, I'll start considering, 
you know, limited series or series television or, or what, or, or did it, was it purely about this material? Um, I, you know, I, I've done television before in, in, in Australia, but yeah, I felt like in a way that the studio system, as we had known it, was beginning to calcify and that some of the most adventurous storytelling was happening in, in the television space or the streaming space, whatever we call it now. But in the end, it's, I've always been interested in the conversation and those conversations hadn't come up for me before. So it wasn't, it wasn't about having a particular attitude towards television. It just hadn't come up. Um, and I'd been busy doing other things. Um, and that this conversation was an undeniable one. And I felt that one, it's about finding the right platform, the right length, the right people to tell a story. And it felt like this story couldn't be told in an hour and a half or two hours. It needed, it needed to be chapterized in a way because it was, it was dense and exciting and thrilling and confronting and relevant that you needed time for an, audi- um, an audience to breathe through it, that it felt it could only happen in this way. And so that felt, it felt really essential for me, I guess. So, um, yeah, maybe if it had been, happened earlier, I don't know, it just also felt very timely. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes you just meet people that you just connect with, as I did with um, Coco and Francini and, and Stacey and Darby. And I just felt like I really, I'm prepared to spend, are you prepared to spend six months with me? Because I could with you. That's you know, how long it, it was. Is, it is, it's a long time. Yeah. Wow. And who did you guys hope would the, the audience would be for this? Is it primarily, I mean, I, are you trying to convert people? Are you trying to educate young people? Or at a time when the word feminist even Mm. Some people don't even, they're, they're hesitant to embrace it. Certain, certain people, what, who did you hope would see it and what'd you hope they would take away? Well, the quality of conversation is always really important to me. I remember years ago, one of the first jobs I did when I was out of drama school, I was in a production of Oliana, David Mamet's Oliella, which is all about the buzzwords and the, you know, the, the mid nineties of political correctness. And that play hit an audience at a time. And that was a red hot button. I mean, politicians now are still trying to make it a red hot button, which basically means just talking about shit. Um, <laughs> but I would go out into the, into the auditorium after the, after the play and the audience would be so engaged and so passionate about that. There was no membrane between me as the character and me as the, as the actor, you know, in the bar. And it was, it was, it was actually really addictive. And so I, I thought that this, the quality of conversation around this series was really important to me. And I wanted to engage people in a very polarized time. The hope was to engage people um, in a conversation to actually reverse engineer how we got here to say, why is the notion of equality so polarizing? And what is so political about that? What is so political about wearing a mask, looking after other people's (laughs) health and our own? You know, like it's all of this stuff that comes out of the fact that we're still talking and laboring under a dysfunctional system that is not serving people. And that is at, at, at base about why, this, you know, out, coming out of the Civil Rights Act of 64, that didn't quite do the job. We needed to enshrine equality to make sure that it was about race, it was about gender, it was about all kinds of sexual persuasion and opportunity, you know, and so that I wanted to make sure that, that we were making a series, as did all of us, that was speaking to all of that stuff. So um, I'm really pleased that a lot of people have been able to look past the usual suspect angle of the, of the series, which is about second wave feminism and the Equal Rights Amendment per se. Of course, that's what the narrative is about. To, to the, 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 the fact that it's actually talking about what connects us, what separates us, and the toxic nature of political discourse as we know it, and how women of all political persuasions have been shut out from that conversation. Women of all races and and, um, sexual persuasions have been shut out of that conversation. And so I think it was a really inspired idea that, that Darby started with it from a conservative perspective, because you don't think about those type of women engaging in that political discourse when we think about the 70s, you think about feminism. And so that women are not a monolith and let's break that apart and see how women can, it's not a cat fight, 
It's called conversation and dialogue, which is what men have when they talk about political issues. You know, so it's um, the, the conversation was really important. And, and I think that that's, you know, been one of the, the great things about having it on a, on a streaming platform, you know, having it on FX and Hulu is that, that more people have seen it, I think, perhaps than they would if it had been a film or been released in another year, maybe. Yeah. In a non-election year. Well, last question I'll bother you with is you have said, quote, every time I'm on stage, every time I've done a film, I go, that's it. I'm done. I'm done. Close quote. Quite often you've referred to the possibility of quitting acting in different interviews that I've seen from over the years. I realize it's not like, uh, you know, a, a one off thing. Is that something that could really happen at some point or is that just something that you're, you're worn out at the end of a project and you feel that way then? But you always bounce back. I'm hoping it's the latter, but I leave it to you. I'm sure there's thousands of people who are hoping <laughs> the opposite. Please, God, don't do that again. <laughs> no, it's it's look, it's it's always one has to be seduced back to to do stuff. And and of course, there's so many other things, so many important things and interesting things to do with one's life and one's time. And you know, uh, but then when you speak to interesting people who have interesting ideas the conversation lures you back in. And I do, I think I do fundamentally believe that storytelling, um, not wanting to sound too pompous or worthy, but it is a powerful way of connecting to our sense of being human and to, um, to reignite our empathy with people and experiences outside our own. And that's what drives me, certainly. Yeah. You know, I couldn't have played a character more different from me in every sense of the word than Phyllis Shifley. Mm -hmm. But, you know, the, the journey is to try and find a point of connection because if you don't speak to people who think differently to you, you're always, I mean, we're all living in bubbles of various type for health reasons at the moment, but we don't want to live our lives that way socially or politically or, you know, eternally. Yeah. Because we're all the same species and we, we do have to find a communal way forward. Can't thank you enough for doing this. I really appreciate it. And, uh, and I urge everyone to go watch Mrs. America. It's great. So thank you. Thank you for your time. Thanks very much for tuning in to Awards Chatter. We really appreciate you taking the time to do that and would really appreciate you taking a minute more to subscribe to our podcast for free and leave us a rating on iTunes or your podcast app, as well as on our Facebook page, which is facebook.com slash awards chatter. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me via Twitter at twitter.com slash Scott Feinberg. And you can follow all of my coverage between episodes at thr.com slash the race. Until next time, thanks for joining us.